At the intersection of business, technology, and people is Connected Futures, your guide to business success. For Steve Durbin, cybersecurity isn't just a tech issue. It's a business issue, a culture issue, and above all, a leadership issue. So no matter how effective your CIO or chief security officer, they're going to need help from the board and the rest of the C-suite, especially the CEO. This is Kevin Delaney for Connected Futures. Recently, I spoke with Steve, who is an internationally recognized consultant on security and the managing director of the Information Security Forum. We met at Cisco's Penn Plaza office in Manhattan for a free-ranging discussion on what your company can do to help ensure growth and innovation in a time of mounting cyber attacks. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Steve. It's great to have you back at uh, Penn Plaza in Manhattan here today. And uh, you've called cybersecurity a growth enabler. Are enough organizations including it as part of their business strategy and as part of their culture? I think certainly, Kevin, that uh, we've, we've seen organizations moving very much more towards that. Uh, I think a couple of years ago, you know, security wasn't uh, viewed as being a competitive advantage. It wasn't seen as being a growth enabler. I think gradually what has happened is that enterprises have, have come to understand that if cyber is all pervasive across the organization, then there should be some way in, it, in which they can, they can monetize it, they can use it to drive the, the way in which uh, they produce product, and more importantly, I think, the way in which they can provide some degree of assurance to customers, employees, stakeholders of all sorts, that, that actually they know what they're, what they're about. So it is on the move, it is changing. Are we there yet? No, we're not, but we're well on the way. And cybersecurity is often viewed as just a technology issue, but as, as you just uh, illustrated so well, it, it goes far beyond that. But are there risks to leaving it squarely on the shoulders of the CIO, no matter how capable he or she may be? I think there are. I, I think that um, it, you know, it, it isn't just about technology. A, a very significant proportion of cybersecurity today is about the likes of you and I. It's about people. It's about the culture of the organization. It's about the way in which we use technology, yes, um, but how we perceive our role in that technology-people interaction and interface. And I think leaving it to the CIO is, is, is a mistake. Why? Because the CIO is, is certainly the, the main point of contact when it comes to the technology elements. But is he or she going to be best equipped to deal with some of those softer people issues? I, I think not. And so I'm, I always encourage organizations to engage much more across the business with the business leaders, with the heads of HR in particular, to really look at how they can embed a positive cyber culture across the enterprise. So is that more the CEO's role? I think so. I, I think it has to come from the top. You know, th this is a leadership issue in a number of different organizations. And uh, the, the CEO is the person who is really putting together the team. Um, he or she is, is the leader, the captain, call it, call it what you will. Um, that's where it all begins for me. It, 
the CEO sets the tone across the enterprise. It's very, very difficult, for instance, to have a, a positive cyber environment if you, if you happen to have a CEO who doesn't believe in password protecting his or her mobile phone or laptop. You know, how can you expect people who are working in the different departments to do that if your leadership is, is lacking in that area? It's a very simple example. Um, but we should never underestimate the, the, the importance of strong leadership in this particular area, not just throughout the organization, but also, of course, in the boardroom. Because the CEO's job is also to bring the board up to the right level of understanding around the cyber profile that he or she is creating across the enterprise and prepare the way, I think, for the day when a breach happens. Because now we have to talk about not if, but when. And the CIO should be in that board discussion as well, and obviously the CISO, if, if the organization has one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, on the board level. On, on the board level. These, these, these conversations are complicated. Uh, they do need to go into all different elements of exactly how the business is structured, how it is using technology, how it is gathering, storing information, personally identifiable information being a particularly hot area, of course, but also about understanding the overall risk profile and what it is that is acceptable from a board perspective and how then the enterprise can deliver on that expectation. That will necessarily drag in the CIO and, of course, the CISO. So having them in the room is, uh, is a good place to start. And what are some of the less obvious impacts of a security breach? Uh, obviously, it affects the brand equity. It, it can affect operations in the short term. But what are some of the less noticeable effects on, for example, having a culture of in innovation or the optimism within the, within the, the workforce for the future, those, those kinds of things? Yeah, good, really good question because, in, you know, in the past, of course, we used to talk about the financial implications, you know, the hit that the stock was going to take. Um, if, if you look at a breach today, then an, an average cleanup from, you know, soup to nuts is probably going to be taking about two years in total. So let's just think through the general business disruption that's associated with that and the impact that's going to have. Very difficult during that time, and unless you've planned for it and rehearsed it, to, to really then foster and encourage more innovation. Your focus is going to be getting things back on track, going to be getting things back up and running, reassuring your board, reassuring your stakeholders, your employees, your customers, your third parties, for instance. How do you then plan for increasing innovation during that period of time, if that is your strategic objective, of course? So I think the key to all of this is really to rehearse the breach, to plan for it, because we know it's going to happen, to then go through how you're going to react from the point at which you discover it, right the way through what somebody I was talking to earlier today described as the rehab process, which can, as I say, take up to, up to two years. So I, I always talk about it from, from, uh, from an athlete's point of view. You know, if you are an athlete and you get an injury, you'll recover a lot more quickly than somebody who isn't perhaps as athletic who has exactly the same injury because you have uh, trained your body to be able to cope with that kind of impact. It's the same with a cyber breach. We need to be going through the process very clearly, in detail, at all levels of the organization, understanding the role of the CEO, the CEO, uh, the CIO, the CISO, uh, and making sure that that then permeates down through the departmental level to each and every individual employee. Looking at it from the perspective of 
How do we, yes, get back up and running, but how do we make sure that it doesn't adversely impact the overall strategic direction that the company is going in? And you need a bold culture these days, don't you? It's, it's Markets are more disruptive than ever, and you need to really take chances. And you have to ensure that that part of your culture isn't eroded, don't you? You do, and it, it is a tough one. It, it really is, particularly when we look at things like uh, loss of personally identifiable information, for instance, of a European citizen. I'm referring, of course, to, to the General Data Protection Regulation, where there are some very real teeth that regulators have from a financial perspective to, to wield fines that, that are, are, are truly eye-watering. Um, so, you know, ag against that sort of backdrop, I think that the natural reaction of, of a number of people and organizations would be, well, let's stay away from some of these more, more risky areas. But we all know that that isn't going to happen. You know, but it does require you to have, I think, clarity of, of purpose, a real understanding of some of the implications of, of what you will do when things go wrong. And you do have to be conveying that message from the board right the way down and across to, uh, to every stakeholder that you have, including your customer base. And your, and your partner ecosystem as well. Most definitely the partner ecosystem. That, that for me, is probably one of the biggest challenges that we face today from a, from a cyber security standpoint, that partner ecosystem. We've certainly had some famous cases where the weak link was in a partner. Uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, it isn't just a, a, a physical organization. It can be a piece of code that you've either bought in uh, or a legacy system that you've got lying around that was produced by a, a third party quite some while ago. And so when we talk about that third-party ecosystem, um, we don't just have to look at the people that are in place today, but we have to ratchet it back over a number of years as well to understand whether or not we've still got some of that lying around the enterprise. And, and if we have, what are we going to do about it? Where, what does it touch? Brings us back to looking at how we protect the most critical components of the business, which increasingly, of course, uh, a data. The whole idea of driving that top-down uh, change culture and maybe above all awareness to, the, to every every level in the organization, it comes down to education, doesn't it? And it, sometimes the simplest actions, just clicking on a link or or plugging in a, a stray um, flash drive or something you don't know the origins of, can can wreak havoc. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's about focusing on, on the basics, as, as you rightly point out. Um, I, I was talking um, earlier on today to uh, um, <clears throat> somebody who'd, who'd been working in special operations for, for most, of his, uh, most of his career. Um, and the point he was making, we were drawing an analogy between special operations and, and cyber security. And, and what we were uh, discussing was the fact that from a special operations standpoint, you spend most of your time rehearsing the basics. Because when all else fails, that's all you've got to fall back on. In cybersecurity, we don't. We don't focus enough on, on the basics. So I think that that, that does include um, end-user training. It includes continuous education. It, it includes in-the-moment coaching. So to your point, you know, if I do plug in a flash drive that I shouldn't, if we're monitoring that device, well, then let's have a pop-up straight away that says, hey, you know, we've recognized something here that, that, that you shouldn't be doing. This is the reason for it and take the user through that education process in the moment rather than waiting. So 
for a lot of organizations, that requires a, a, a different approach. It's about understanding, I think, the psychology of the user. Um, some of the more advanced organizations that I'm familiar with do actually have in-house psychologists who work with security departments and, and training and HR to try to enable some of this so that you know people really do understand the impact of some of the things that they're doing from the psychological perspective rather than, I think, from... from uh, from the more traditional, I would I would call it security training, which you know consists probably of of caps and mugs and t-shirts and all of that fun stuff, but we know doesn't actually work in the longer term. Hackers have no shortage of creative approaches, as we all know. Should a CEO encourage the same kinds of innovative, out of the box thinking from a CIO or a CISO, and? The reverse of that is what kind of effects can a, can a risk-averse, punitive culture have on cybersecurity if you're not thinking out of the box? Yeah, I, I, I think that um, we have to get away from, and I, and I think most, most, a large number of organizations today have done this, get away from the cybersecurity guy being seen as the traffic cop. You, know, you can't park here and here's a parking ticket. That doesn't get you anywhere. It has to be about constructive feedback. It has to be about in-the-moment feedback, as I've, as I've just been saying. Um, it is about trying different things. It is about introducing innovation into the way in which we convey our cybersecurity messages across the enterprise. But for me, this is all about leadership within the organization. You, you cannot really leave it down to the chief information security officer or the CIO to implement some of these things. We have to be playing a much better team game across the enterprise. We do have to be including people who do this for a living. I'm thinking in particular of, of marketing, for instance, HR. I've mentioned the, uh, the, the psychology elements of it. It's about pulling together all of the strengths that you have across the organization and saying, you know, let's, let's bring that combined horsepower together to try to address this particular issue. We know that we're never going to fix it once and for all. It's not about that. It's about injecting this continuous improvement process into the organization around cyber that says it is a vibrant industry, it is very exciting. We all know that there are things that we probably shouldn't be doing but are. Let's understand better some of the implications of that. Let's understand better some of the policies and the processes that we have in place across the enterprise and why we have them, how that relates to you as the individual. And let's be transparent about it. If you have a problem with it, let's discuss it. Let's have a policy or an approach that allows for that, that allows for exceptions. I was talking to another um, former uh, CISO at Johnson & Johnson not so long ago, who was telling me that that's exactly what he used to have in place. And he measured the effectiveness of his policies on the number of exceptions. And the bigger the number of exceptions, the better he thought he was doing, because people actually were paying attention to the policy and bringing those exceptions forward. And he said in the majority of cases, they were perfectly legitimate. And that way, he gained the trust and the support of the business and the individuals, because they were having that very open, transparent conversation about why things were being done the way they were, and from his point of view, understanding better how perhaps there might need to be some ways of... of, of uh, coming up with exceptions to those rules. And it really does speak to the changing role of for, for technology leaders, doesn't it? The CIO, the, C, the, the, the CISO, 
the, the traditional cliches about them being sort of in, in their own world with the technology in, in, the, in the basement data center somewhere really don't hold true anymore. They really, it's really part of the job description. You really need to be in the organization and having an impact and communicating and developing those soft skills that you mentioned earlier. No doubt, Kevin. Absolutely no doubt at all. I, I, I think that power has shifted entirely away from the CIO to the end user. The end user is king. If you tell me not to do something, I'll find a way to do it. You know, shadow IT, shadow IT yeah. good example of mm -hmm. that. Um, we all operate off our smartphones. And uh, if I can do something on my smartphone in my personal life, I want to be able to do that in the corporate environment as well. Mm -hmm. Think about that from a CIO standpoint. That is a nightmare compared to the way that life used to be in the good old days when we, could, when we had the big you know, server room and we could lock it down and, and all that kind of stuff. But that's the environment in which we now live. Mobile is, is the way to go. We have to have an app for everything. So we need to understand better from the organizational standpoint the implications of that. And we need to start with the data. We need to follow the data. And that's the role of the CIO for me. It's about how do we then track, measure, monitor, manage that so that the user can continue to access it in a way that is acceptable from a user experience perspective, but also so that we can control and manage it from a way that is acceptable from an organizational standpoint to live up to all of the, the, um, the policies, the compliance, the regulations that are in place uh, around that. So the CIO role, for me, has become very much more complicated. And uh, as you rightly point out, he or she does need to have not just technical capability and skills, but, but a high degree of emotional intelligence, an ability to articulate clearly what it is that he or she is trying to achieve, and to come up with solutions rather than you know, implementing things that, that we expect people to use. It's about providing solutions to what the end user is looking to do and aligning that with the strategic direction that the business is taking. And what can the CEO do to facilitate this, to support the CIO in expanding that role? And IT in general. Yeah, I, th I think it's about transparency from the top. It's about understanding very clearly the, the, the interconnect lines between business strategy and technology. How do they play nicely together? The CEO's job is to really foster that interrelationship. It's about saying and articulating clearly the overall direction that the business is going to be taking, about being able to explain the implications from a technology standpoint of achieving that, and about being able to understand some of the costs associated with that from a resource requirement perspective, but also from the end user standpoint too. That's the role of the, of the CEO. It, it's about trying to bring all of those together in a way that is acceptable to the business but also in a way that is acceptable to the board. Because let's not forget, we have shareholders that we have to uh, respond to, and we have to explain why we're doing certain things. Um, and so again, I think that the role of the CEO has become very much more, I would say, interesting. Um, be because you have to understand how you can uh, integrate cyber technology into the whole business environment in which you're operating and still deliver the sorts of uh, uh, performance that, um, that, that your board and your shareholders can legitimately expect. And how are companies, in your view, integrating cybersecurity into their broader risk management efforts? 
I, I think we're um, we're on the point of moving away from some of the traditional ways in which we have looked at that. What I mean by that is that if we look at the way in which security very often managed risk, it tended to be quite a soft perspective that was taken. So we would look at sort of business impact analysis, we'd look at threats and vulnerabilities, we'd, we'd look at the risk implications of that. But ultimately, we would make a judgment call from a security standpoint that said, you know, I, I think this is, this is right. And we'd take that to the business, and the business would very often look at it and say, well, how do you quantify that? Put it into real dollars and cents for me. And the response was, well, I can't do it. So I think there's now a general acceptance that it isn't about if we're going to have a breach, it's about when we're going to have a breach. So from a risk management standpoint, we need to understand what is reasonable from an investment, from a resource perspective, given that we're in an environment where we know that something's going to happen one day, we don't know when, and we hope it's not, but we know it is. So how do we quantify the amount of effort that's required to put in place reasonable um, guidelines, resources, to be able to recover from that and to manage and monitor those challenges on the way through the business? That's taking us into a different kind of risk analysis approach. It's taking us into an area where we need to be able to quantify it where we need to be really looking at a, a quantitative assessment approach to that risk analysis. And of course, if you happen to be you know, in the financial services space, working in, say, um, credit risk and so on, you, you get that straight away. That's exactly how your business is founded. Security hasn't done that. And, and so I think we are seeing these two forces, if you like, slightly coming together. And, and that, for me, is a, is a good thing because it means that we're starting, from a security standpoint anyway, to be able to articulate some of our challenges in a language that the business can understand, that a language that the business can quantify in dollars and cents. And we can then make sensible decisions that say, if I invest this amount of money, this is the kind of return I'm going to get on that investment. Rarely have we been able to do that from a security standpoint. And that, for me, is the big shift that I see going on now. It, it's not going to reach all organizations in the short term. We're probably looking at a five to 10 year window from, from that standpoint, but I think that's where we're headed. In terms of investments, a lot of organizations are still struggling to maintain security with a slow legacy infrastructure. And it can still be a struggle to, to get the money to, to modernize that. I think you have to start with the business objective. For me, that's where it begins and ends. So, um, for instance, if I'm looking to move into a new market or I'm looking to release a new product, can the infrastructure that I currently have in place support that business objective? Yes, no, maybe. That's where it begins and ends. So now you're starting to say, okay, if, if this is business critical, a move into the Far East, for instance, if, if you happen to not be there at the moment, and I need to have this extension to infrastructure that is going to cost X, and I need to have this different level of security um, that's going to cost Y. Is that an effective use of my dollars in support of that business objective? If it is, fine. If it isn't, then what implication does that have for my push into a new market, into a new region? 
And those are the kinds then of conversations that we need to be having that say, okay, if I do this, it has this implication, a knock-on effect from the business standpoint. And it may well be that that results sometimes in us changing our business strategy. And for me, that's fine because we've made that judgment. We've gone through that process. What is not acceptable for me is to say, I'm going to move into that region and hey, Mr. CIO, you just figure it out. I'm not paying all that money for you to upgrade the, the, the legacy stuff. I just expect for you to make it happen. And if you don't, I'll do something different and shadow IT. That isn't where we need to be going. We need to be playing on the same team, looking at it from the perspective that says, if it's business critical and that's where we're headed, then this is the cost of supporting that from a business standpoint. That's the change in the language and the relationship that we need to be uh, that we need to be getting to. So, so who should be leading that discussion? You know, you just hinted at a scenario in which the CIO wants to make those changes, but but hits a wall. Yeah, I, I think this is where really you know it's a the, the CEO has to bang some heads. You have to have the CFO in the room, the the, the money guy. Um, you have to have the CIO in the room because he or she understands the system side of things. And if you're going into a new region, then you would probably need to have the business leader in that space as well. So it's about having those sensible discussions with the right people. And that's the, the, the role of the CEO, pulling those people together that says, look, th this isn't about squaring off against each other. This is about us determining how we can best achieve our business objectives, understanding clearly what the cost might be, and then making the right decisions. And as you say, it's about putting it in context as well, isn't it? It's not just about cool new technology. It's about being able to achieve your business outcomes. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and, and the relevance of that, you know, it, it, it's about not being afraid to question. Um, I'll, I'll give you a simple example. You know, an organization that uh, has a, um, <clears throat> has a, has a two-year mobile phone upgrade policy. Well, it may well be that that two-year policy is changed to three years, one year, because we want to use some of that money to fund something else. What's the impact of that going to be? Frankly, probably not very much. In dollars, probably quite a lot. So it's it's those kinds of things, and that's just a very simplistic uh, look at it. So I think it's about not being afraid to challenge some of the ways in which we've done things in the past and to make sure that we're optimizing our revenue um, so that we can reinvest in the right ways and, and use the right level of resourcing to achieve the objectives. And when we talk about a cyber-resilient culture, a lot of it comes down to talent, doesn't it? And there's a talent crunch mm -hmm. in, in, in things like security. What are your thoughts on um, getting the right, the right talent? Yeah, yeah absolutely. We, we know that there is a, <clears throat> a shortage in, uh, of talent in that particular space. But we also know that we probably haven't been approaching the problem, I would say, from the right angle. What do I mean by that? Well, all too often I, I see security advertisements for, for people that are stressing the need for um, certifications, for certain training elements, for, for technical skills. That isn't always necessarily what's needed. If we look at security from much more of a, a people perspective rather than a technology perspective, then actually we're looking for people with high emotional intelligence. We're looking for people who can convey a message in the most appropriate manner to, to the sorts of people we've just been talking about. 
So we're looking for a range of softer skills as well. And if we look at it from that standpoint, then many of our security jobs can actually be sourced from things like marketing, from uh, some of the social sciences. We can train people to a certain extent with the technical know-how, or we can use third parties to provide some of that input. You know, we don't have to have it all in-house. A good example would be forensics. Very few organizations need to have forensic capability in-house. You would always go out and buy that from people who are you know, investigating breaches on a daily basis, for instance. So I think we can help ourselves by expanding the pool of, uh, of talent. I think then, once we've attracted people in, we have to really look at the way in which we have um, established the employee contract. We have to have a much more transparent approach that says there is a, a general understanding that people are probably not going to be spending more than two to three years with you in an organization. There will be exceptions. But we do see quite a, quite a high churn in that area. So what is it that those individuals are looking to derive from that employment experience? Let's have that transparent conversation. And what is it that we're expecting from an employer's perspective as well? So it's a two-way street here. How do we develop those people? What is important to them? It isn't actually all about money. Some of it is about diversity. Some of it's about culture. Some of it's about career opportunity. So we need to be having very much more open discussions, I think, across a broader range of skill sets to really um, solve some of the challenges that we're seeing from a workforce perspective. And again, that is going to take us out of the security department because we're going to need the support of HR. We're going to need the support of other business leaders. It may well be that circling some of the people from a, a sales environment, for instance, into security for a while is the right thing to do from the business standpoint. It gives them extra cyber-based skills. They understand some of the challenges. From the cyber perspective as well, you're getting the business perspective, which you wouldn't otherwise have. So I think there's a lot of benefits in us taking a different approach to how we source skills. Um, but it's going to require employers, I think, to take a different approach as well to, to the way in which they go out, hire, train, um, and, and, uh, and develop their people. In, in something like security, mm. nobody ever has enough talent internally. <laughs> Everybody has to access external help. And managing multiple vendors can be a challenge in itself, can it? What are, what are some of the best practices there? Yeah, managing the third party is, is a real issue. I think that... Um, it is about, again, clarity. <clears throat> I, I've very often talked about um, the, the need to uh, agree the prenup um, when, you know, at the, at the point that you're cutting a contract with a third party. But I think it is about sharing as much as possible um, <clears throat> with that third party about what it is that you're trying to achieve. You know, why are you entering into that relationship? How long do you view it going to last? What are the sorts of um, handoffs in terms of information that you're going to be sharing? What are the requirements for preserving the integrity of some of that information? You know, is it particularly sensitive data, for instance, that you might be handing off? Um, and, and what are the processes that you're putting in place for some of the people that you might be bringing in? Um, I'm thinking of managed service in particular. So it, it's about, I think, opening it up and, and really laying out with the third party that you're beginning a relationship with exactly what you're expecting, their role, your role, and then reviewing that on an ongoing basis. But it's also preparing for the day when the contract comes to an end, because the best time to do that is right at the beginning. Uh, and, and then, you know, 
it may well be that it gets renewed or it may well be that you go your separate ways. Um, but again, there is no discussion or debate or argument about how you actually end that, uh, end that relationship. But so clarity, um, measuring along the way and really determining what the end game looks like at the beginning. Is there a case to be made for vendor consolidation? I mean, sometimes one of the challenges is just having something like security. Uh, one organization can have so many uh, partners in security that to try to whittle that down into into fewer companies that can fewer vendors that can help you do more. Yeah, I, I think that th there are different schools of thought on that. Obviously, I mean there are, there are some that that prefer to have you know multiple vendors because they they believe that it's it's more appropriate to have experts in certain areas. There are others that will take a view that says, well, if I go with with uh, one of the very big uh, vendors, they can provide me with all of the range of service that I that I actually need. I don't think it's a right or wrong answer. I, I think if you're going to have um, multiple vendors, what is essential is that you have a third-party supply management group whose job it is to manage all of those interfaces for you. Life becomes a little easier if you just have you know a single source um, for that. But but ultimately, it's going to be down to um, the way in which an individual business wants to uh, wants to run its third-party supplier process. And there's no shortage of emerging technologies, AI, machine learning, IoT, that are changing the threat landscape. What are the implications for a typical business, especially from a CEO perspective? Yeah, I I, I think that one of the, one of the biggest challenges that I have, um, you know, if I look at it from a personal perspective, is really keeping abreast of all of these things and understanding the impact or not that they will have on my business, on the direction that I've set for the business, on the direction that I've agreed with my board, the direction that I've articulated to my employees. Um, and th there is always going to be a new shiny technology that's going to catch my eye. Uh, and so I think it's about really balancing that, you know, reining back perhaps some of the enthusiasm. I'm thinking in particular here of artificial intelligence. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm hugely enthusiastic about artificial intelligence. And, and we've talked about this in, in, in other podcasts. There's a hype cycle. There, there is, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I happen to think that, that AI can provide a range of different answers and solutions to some of the challenges that we face from a security standpoint. But is it at a point today of maturity where an organization such as my own would be able to take advantage? Unfortunately, I have to say no, um, because we aren't at that stage uh, of, uh, uh, of maturity, I think, in, in terms of how we might be able to, to use it. So what's my role in it then? Well, I have to maintain a watching brief. I have to, have to continue to ask the question of, of, uh, of my team as to whether or not it is appropriate. When might it be appropriate? Um, how are other people using it? So I think it's about maintaining that understanding of the overall landscape. And I think that third parties, vendors, have a, have a key role to play in that. You know, um, the CEO's time is very limited. But at the same time, we shouldn't interpret that as a lack of interest. And, and the role of the, of the vendor, for me anyway, the best vendors that, the, that I tend to work with are those that are appreciative of that and are able to articulate how their product, solution, uh, innovation might benefit my business. And, and, and those are the ones that I then tend to spend time with. And if the CEO has a really trusted relationship with their CIO and their CISO, 
it goes a long way too, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I, I think you have to to, to have that. Um, you know, because you're you're incredibly reliant on those people, um, both to bring you some of the innovations that are out there, but also to reassure you that we're doing all that is reasonably possible. And, and those are very important words, you know, reasonably possible, um, to provide the right level of technology, the right level of innovation, the right level of security that wraps around all of that for the way in which your business is going to be moving over the coming three, six, nine, twelve months. And any other thoughts on some of the threats that you see on the horizon that if they're not keeping uh, folks up at night now, maybe should be? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that some of the things that, that concern me still are the third parties, the, the, the supply chain in, in particular. I'm, I'm very concerned about that. I think that uh, security across the supply chain and, and being able to, to genuinely measure that is a, is a myth. I, I really do. I think that the third-party supply chain is so complex now, so difficult to, to really pin down, that it, it's an impossibility. And so we have to look at that from the business standpoint then and say, well, okay, given that we can't measure it, given that we can't guarantee in that space, what are we going to do? How are we going to manage that? Because we can't move away from those interrelationships. We, we're, we're so interlocked now across the world with, with different suppliers and, and, and so on. So that's one of them. I, I think another one that uh, uh, I find interesting is, is around this sort of volume and velocity uh, piece, if I could put it that way. I'm, I'm thinking in particular of the advent of 5G, um, the speed at which we're going to be able to share information is going to have some very significant business benefits but it is also going to open up opportunities either to, to nation states or cyber criminals um, to take advantage of that. And I think we need to be ready for that. Uh, and I think we need to understand the implications of that uh, as we, we move down that adoption route. So those would be two that, uh, that, that are catching my eye at the moment. And this has been great, by the way. Always, always a pleasure. And uh, any final thoughts on what it takes to, to, to drive to create that cyber-resilient culture that you've, you've spoken of across the organization? I, I think, for, for, for me anyway, it, when I think about a cyber-resilient culture, it is one that is not about preventing people do things. It is one that says, you know, we have fantastic opportunities. Cyber has enabled um, so much in terms of uh, the way in which we are able to go about doing our business, the, the flexibility that people have to, remote, to work remotely, the access that, that people have to information that they wouldn't otherwise be able to, to get a hold of. Um, it is an exciting space. It is vibrant. It, it does present challenges, but actually it, it's a very, very positive message, I think, that, that uh, cyber sends. And so when we then look at cyber resilience, it isn't about damping any of those down. It's about saying, given that environment that is so very exciting and fast-moving, what can we do to be safer, to be more effective? That, for me, is, about, is, is what cyber resilience is all about, rather than, uh, as I say, preventing us from doing things. Really opens the door to innovation, growth, competition, productivity, all the things that 
every company wants. Absolutely, and, and, and indeed doing things differently. That, that for me is, uh, is the really exciting piece. You know, we, we, we don't have to keep doing things the way we used to. Um, if we could just open that door a little bit from the innovation standpoint and, and, and approach it sensibly and securely, um, the, the opportunities are absolutely endless. This is Kevin Delaney for Connected Futures. My special thanks to Steve Durbin for some great insights on what your leadership team can do to prevent a cyber attack from the top down. For more insights, analysis, and the voice of thought leaders, go to the Connected Futures online magazine at connectedfuturesmag.com.